This is Ben Max from Gotham Gazette. And I'm Jared Murphy from City Limits, and the podcast comes to you today from Brooklyn Borough Hall, Borough Hall, where we're very pleased to be joined by Mr. Eric Adams, the Borough President of Brooklyn. Thanks for joining us, sir. Thank you. Thank you. I, I love this mobile stuff, you know? <laughs> we <laughs> come to you. Yeah. Right, right. Yeah, you yeah. Know, this is really, it's very informative, and it's a good way to just um, evolve with the desire to hear what's going on at all the time. So we're in budget season, and we're in the height of budget season in the city. Last week, the mayor issued his executive budget. Curious, in terms of the needs and priorities of the people of Brooklyn, of, of your priorities, how well does the mayor's budget plan match that? What did you like and dislike? Well, we're a little, uh, I'm a little disappointed and concerned about the fact that on the capital level, um, there was a reduction in our capital uh, allocation, and my capital team is going to go over it. You know, we normally uh, sit down prior to the budget com uh, comes out and determine what are those priorities around capital. Uh, and I put a large amount of capital in schools. Um, probably since I've been here, we've, we've placed over $100 million into schools. And when you cut the capital, it really impacts a lot. Um, so we're really combing through the budget. You know, the devil's, devil is in the details to determine um, what is going to, going to be the major impact specifically for, for, for Brooklyn. We're excited about uh, the allocation that he's, you know, putting into um, the schools, open schools at a longer period of time for after school programs. It is a, you will be surprised how many parents um, in elementary school who um, can't afford, and pre-K, and 3K, uh, who can't afford after-school programs for their uh, children. And um, having them in at an early time while they're still in their place of employment, it just really complicates the matter. And it actually feeds into the equation of are they going to enroll their children into pre-K and 3K. And so um, all of our school children should have uh, after-school programs. And so one creative way that we pushed for years, we were successful in accomplishing, um, he's going to allocate $2 million uh, to that. And so we're looking forward to, uh, looking forward to that. Very good. So um, one of the things that's coming up is, um, well, the mayor's already set up his Charter Revision Commission, but he's sort of doing that thing on his own. But there's a different Charter Revision Commission that's coming down through the city council, pushed by uh, your counterpart in Manhattan and public advocate James, and you're going to get an appointment um, onto that Charter Revision Commission. Uh, are you, you know, what are you thinking about this opportunity that's going to be in front of New Yorkers over the next two years here with these two commissions? Are there top priorities that you have in terms of that appointment and what you want to see in, the, in that process? Uh, yes, very excited about it. Uh, I think that the speaker and the public advocate, and I believe Gail Brewer also had a role in it. Um, they were smart to state, let's open uh, the field up so we could receive recommendations from the other electeds. And uh, the number one issue that is impacting uh, politics in this city is campaign finance. You guys can do a whole show on this just by itself. I'm extremely passionate about it. We need to stop playing games and stop tinkering around the edges and acting like um, the money in politics is not a problem. It's a problem. There is no reason we should not have a 100% public finance system. I should not call any public private donors. 
Um, I should not be reaching out to anyone. I should merely um, have a allocated amount of money that I can spend, and that's it. And then I need to go out and and meet my voters. We're going to re, uh, release a report that you're receiving information about uh, first here. We're going to release a report to show, based on zip codes, um, the most affluent zip codes and where the dollar amounts are that we're raising to put into campaign. People are not going to NYCHA. They're not going to um, South Bronx and South Jamaica, Queens. They're going to affluent zip codes. So in actuality, um, those, poor, those poorer zip codes are not part of the campaign cycle. And if, if we want to even and level the playing field, we need a 100% public finance com, uh, a system. If you get the average campaign, uh, Ms. Johnson, who's a PTA president and she wants to run for, for public advocate or wants to run for council person, Navigating um, CFB is impossible for them. The, the amount of staff, the amount of paper you must fill out, the amount of reporting, the amount of receipts. When, you, when I started to look at it, I had, I, I had to have a full-time compliance attorney that I pay each month just to handle borough president race and pub, um, uh, my race for any citywide office. That is just unbelievable, and it's not a real system. So there's more ways to say if you are in an economically challenging area, you're not allowed in than saying it. If the system prevents you from getting in, then you're also denied access in. So that's a little bit of a sort of acknowledgement that for people running for office, for elected officials, you know, they listen to their donors more than they do other people. I mean, is that just sort of a fact of politics that you're laying out bare for everybody? Is that there's just no question that people pay more attention to the people that give them campaign donations? No, I, I don't think I don't think so. And it's not saying that I spend more time <clears throat> in poorer zip codes than I do in those zip, zip codes of a high economic status. What I'm saying is that it sends the wrong message. And everyone is not like Eric Adams. Some people will say, I'm just going to focus on those high donor areas. If you were to do an analysis of my, um, uh, my schedule, it clearly shows that the bulk of my time are in those high needs community communities. But when you're going out and you're, you're spending your time on the phone, because that's part of the process. I don't think people realize how many phone calls you have to make to raise money. You know, I've made thousands of calls when I ran for state senator, when I ran for bar president. And, uh, and the number of calls you make is just taken away from the quality time that you should be spending doing your job. And the only common denominator in politics, if you were to poll... Uh, 100 elected officials and say, what are the type, top three things you dislike about office? I guarantee you 90% uh, of them would say having to get on the phone and raise money. You know, guarantee you. People, call time. Call time. People hate it. <laughs> you know, mm -hmm. you, 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 you rather go get tortured somewhere <laughs> in some prison than picking on the phone, calling a stranger and say, hey, would you give me your hard-earned money to an institution that you, I know you hate? <laughs> you know, it's just, it's just awful. And it's just a terrible thing 
um, on all level of government, but New York needs to need, lead the way and stop playing with it. We're, we're acting like, well, you know, we're lowering the donor's amount. It's, stop, stop. It doesn't matter if, 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 if I live in an affluent area, I don't care what amount you lower, it's easy for me to call 100 friends and say, hey, um, uh, you know, on our way to the, to the Hamptons, can you get 1,000 of your friends to do $175? I can't call someone from um, the pink house and say, hey, on your way to Coney Island Beach, can you give $175? It's not going to happen, you know? I personally hate getting phone calls when I'm on the way to the <laughs> um, Switching gears a little bit, there are two uh, neighborhoods in your borough that are on the cusp would appear of having a, a formal rezoning conversation. Bushwick and Gowanus both have had neighborhood-based processes. What's your involvement in those and what are you hoping to see? There's a mix of manufacturing, housing in the discussion. What are you kind of hoping comes out of those? must pr protect the industrial zones. We have been very clear on that in the manufacturing zones, uh, but we also have to rethink those areas. And when we talk about manufacturing, the, the, the days of having one company uh, come in and taking over the entire building, those, those days are, are over. You know, uh, some of the stuff that we're seeing at Liberty View, uh, uh, Industry City, where you see um, smaller footprints, uh, people are sharing spaces, um, they're sharing an opportunity to do this new type of manufacturing um, that is allowing, uh, you know, more creative. And we, it has been extremely attractive and we want to continue to, to encourage that. So any zoning that we do uh, in, the, in, the, in the borough comes through, of course, uh, some of it comes through the ULA process where we weigh in and we look at each, each location individually and we assess um, is it going to fit into the new character of the community because we can't merely say is it going to fit into the old character because the, the character has changed, Brooklyn has changed. We would not have believed the skyline of downtown Brooklyn would have been what we are looking at now. And so the real challenge is, is when is it um, on uh, the, the barriers of those um, small low zone communities, such as uh, very challenging uh, applications, um, 80 Flatbush Avenue. Uh, it, it, it really, it, it neighbors a, a block where it's a, sm you know, we have those small tree-lined tree block where it's, um, uh, you have those brownstones. So we have to think that through and figure out how do we do it without um, overwhelming the existing uh, communities uh, that are there. And so our goal is to really speak with the council person on the ground find out what are their thoughts, how do we do a perfect combination between um, creating more affordable housing. That's the number one issue that we are um, hearing about uh, in this borough is affordable units. Uh, how do we create affordable units, but at the same time um, take into account the existing history of the community? Does the borough president have enough power in this equation? I mean, you know, you convene people, you have a platform, but your advisory, um, is that something that needs to be changed to tie it back, I guess, to the charter revision question? Do you feel like you have enough sway? I mean, you use your platform often slightly different than others, but um, do you have enough power on land use? I say yes, uh, and I'm a firm believer, even when the Board of Estimates uh, changed and the borough presidents didn't have that um, 
that real financial hammer that they had previously. I believe that the office does not make the man, the man makes the office. And you use um, the assets that you have. We, we, we distribute an area of $52 million in capital uh, a year. Um, much of that capital uh, goes into the uh, council matter districts. And so it's important for me in those areas where I have a recommendation, uh, those areas where I have community boards appointments, um, I look at all of the assets and leverage power of the office, and I, I don't look at it as, okay, here, I'm just going to use that power during the land use. I must now bring all the power. The same conversations I develop when a council person comes to me and says, Eric, can you put a million dollars in this project in my community? They're going to have to come and sit down when we start talking about how are we going to do these zonings? I'm going to send down my recommendations. We need to be on the same page. So it is a give and take. It's develop, developing those relationships throughout the year that allows us to go in and take that power of that recommendation to really mean something. I have great relationship with Laurie Cumbo, uh, uh, Councilman Traeger, uh, Steve Levin, Chaim uh, um, Deutsch, all of my council people. We meet at the beginning of the year and I lay out what my vision is for the year and I hear what their visions um, are for the year and we, we exchange. And so we, we they utilize um, our power of this office. We have one of the great land use persons in Richard who's here and they utilize uh, that input uh, to assist in their office. So the, the weight of this office plays a major role when we do make those recommendations. And we try to be in lockstep with the needs of those council persons because they're on the ground. Sometimes we agree, sometimes we disagree, and they have the ultimate sign-off uh, on what they're going to do. Um, and uh, historically, it was different than what I believe the current speaker is going to do. Uh, historically, it was like once the council person said no, it was a wrap. But this speaker is saying that he's going to weigh into other things, which is going to be very interesting. And something you're concerned about, sounds no, like? No, no, not at all. I think that um, we have a good relationship with the speaker um, in communications with him. Um, I think that whichever way he decides to run his house, it's not going to have an impact on how we're going to run the house here in Borough Hall. Okay. You signed on recently, or you were part of, a very interesting proposal regarding school food and the desire to move toward a plant-based uh, diet in school food. Talk a little bit about that and how that's been received. You know, we are so dysfunctional as a city when you start to think about it. We have a schizophrenic health care philosophy. One end we say, uh, I think, I, I like to say we have a civil health care personality. In one area we say that uh, childhood obesity is an issue, asthma is an issue. Yet we feed the children the food that cause the disease. <laughs> you know, there's a disconnect. If we're saying that we need to stop in poor communities to have the increase in asthma rates, but we're feeding food that scientifically has been proven to cause asthma. Diabetes is on the rise, yet every morning we're telling our children, come on and get your daily dose of diabetes food so that, you know, your, your numbers are getting younger and younger, you know, of diabetic patients. Oh, yes, we have a childhood obesity issue, but you know what? We're going to feed you the food. 
we're having a conversation of what type of pizza we should serve our children when pizza is directly linked to, di- to, to obesity. And it counts as a vegetable, I think. <laughs> it's, it, is, it is so bizarre. And then forget about that part about it. How about one of the most uh, conservative organizations I can think of, the WHO, is saying, hey, guys, the food you feed in your children is a type 1 carcinogen. And you know what else joins you in a type one? Cigarettes. <laughs> so you know. So what do it, you want to do? What what what's, what should it look like? We need to stop, we need to stop playing with this. We we play with real issues. Children should be receiving healthy food, not only because it will help them in their current state, but we're starting to build in habits. Because school is more than learning one and one is equals two. You're learning those social norm and behavioral habits, particularly in a borough like Brooklyn with 47% speaking language other than English at home. The children now go to school, they learn about these healthy habits, they go home to their parents, which is a highly immigrant population, and say, no mom, we're not supposed to eat this McDonald's every day. We're supposed, supposed to have at least X number of salads, et cetera. So I want us to start having children eat healthy and learn good, healthy social norms. So we're obviously jumping around to a bunch of topics. You're the borough president. You got a hand in everything that comes your way. Um, JC said 99 (laughs) problems. Yeah, exactly. Um, NYCHA obviously has been a very significant focus of late. There's been all sorts of crises. Some people might say scandals. Um, We obviously have chair Olatoye stepping down, um, the mayor getting vilified for a lot of stuff, fingers being pointed in all sorts of directions. What is your take on the NYCHA landscape? Who bears, you know, what responsibility and where things need to to go? NYCHA is a problem, has been a problem. And now the only way we can change the narrative or will be a problem is to do something different. And we have to think outside the box. Um, We're asking uh, OMB uh, to look at the analysis of the repairs. When I walk through NYCHA, um, you know, I am a homeowner. When I bought my, purchased my home, I made a smart decision of doing a total gut rehab so that I didn't have to worry about the plumbing and the wiring because it was just too old. Uh, we need to have a, a real conversation of, about do we tear down NYCHA and rebuild it at the quality level that it, that it, that it needs to be. And when I say that, we have to, to be committed to zero displacement. The current tenants there are guaranteed uh, to remain there. And so we need to do a real analysis. What is the real cost on um, uh, fixing NYCHA? Because the old pipes, old roofs, old wiring, you know, so OMB needs to do a real analysis. What is the cost? What is it going to cost us to go in and do the type of repairs that would allow NYCHA to be a, a, a housing stock for the future? There's a lot of open land there. Um, we need to bring in the communities, let them have input. There's a lot of distrust. There's a lot of anger where people have been uh, told one thing, they received another. And so my goal is to give them the quality that they're looking for. Too many concentrated poverty creates an environment where people believe they don't deserve better. And we walked into some of the NYCHA residents, the conditions are, are beyond belief, and people were just stating 
that you know I don't mind the hole in the in in my my um, wall. I don't mind that the guy upstairs toilet water is dripping on my toilet and I just have to wipe it up if they could just do something with the mold. I mean, you know, when people reach, reach those conditions, then they just, they gave up. And as we walk through, folks have finally discovered that there is a NYCHA and they're walking through, you know, I don't know where they've been all these years. NYCHA problem did not start now. The state abandoned NYCHA. The feds abandon NYCHA, and they need to um, take into account that we need to reinvest into NYCHA. Uh, the shooting in your borough a few weeks ago of Mr. Uh, Vassal, the guy who was carrying the pipe stub um, that apparently looked like a gun, you're one of the few people in public life who, ever, who was faced during your career with, with a situation potentially like that. I'm curious, knowing what you know about policing and the realities of it, in a situation like that, for the cops arriving on the scene with the information they have, with what they saw, is there a way really for a situation of that to be prevented? Oh uh, no, no. And um, I, I have I was notice, noticeably absent um, from a lot of the protests because I think that people have a right uh, to uh, voice uh, their concerns. Um, but I think I, I, I have an obligation of being responsible in my conversation with community members. Uh, when, I, when I saw the image of him walking down the block and pulling out what appeared to be a gun, if I was off duty and I saw that action, you know, I would have taken necessary police action to, um, to stop the threat. That based on what I saw, I saw a clear, immediate threat. Now, a police officer has an obligation, if they see what they appear to be deadly physical force on an officer or another civilian, they're supp supposed to take and meet that action to stop that threat. And I think those officers did that. I thought they, they arrived at, they got a call of a man with a gun. That's the first thing. They got a call of a man with a gun. They they didn't just come on the scene and said, I thought I saw someone with a gun. They got a call, a man with a gun. So when you're responding to that job, you are preparing yourself that there's a possibility that this person has a gun. When they got to the scene, the person went into a combat stance. Every training you have is telling you that I am now in front of a person who's in a combat stand stance and they are in the process of discharging a weapon. The bullet may not only hit the officers, but it could hit an innocent person. So I think when you, the totality of that event, I can only walk away with one belief that those officers responded they took proper uh, action based on police department rules and procedures, and it's unfortunate that this person um, did not have a gun, and, and, and he lost his life. But in reality, he was moving through the streets in a manner that he was, he, was carrying, he was carrying a gun. So anyone can look back later and say, well, why did, why did you shoot him in the leg? Why didn't you um, know that he had a history of mental health? Why did that's just not the life, man. This this is not Hill Street Blues. You know, this is the real life of policing. And officers dis disarm people that 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 are carrying serious weapons. But there are times when you are immediately 
uh, faced with that danger, you have to take action. Let's zoom out on that for a second, largely you know, because of your personal experience in the police force. Um, there's been a lot of reporting. There's been leaked documents about um, accountability at NYPD. Broadly speaking, do you, how do you assess the culture of um, accountability for police officers who, understanding your, your understanding of officers in that situation, but in other situations um, where even officers are deemed to have acted incorrectly, is there enough accountability at the NYPD right now? Uh, no, there is not. I don't believe there's enough. Um, and one of the uh, major mistakes I believe we've made in policing, um, not only here in New York but across the entire country, is that um, to those who are abusive of their power, um, uh, our agencies have became uh, safe havens for them. And that's problematic. And many of our um, uh, institutions, when it comes down to, you know, we, we want to give officers the benefit of a doubt. And sometimes we go far beyond that. There are officers with, with horrific police records. And you have to ask yourself, what is this guy still doing in the uniform? To have the right to take away freedom in life is probably, the president doesn't have that right. And so if you're going to be given that right, with that right, you must be scrutinized and you must reach the highest level of standard. And there are too many officers who are still wearing a blue uniform who don't come near that standard. And they have done some things that are so horrific. Um, and <clears throat> we're not doing a good job of weeding them out so we could have this pristine um, police department. And they kill them around. If you're in a precinct and you got a guy that you know, this guy is, is always in tox, he's always abusive, everybody he arrests, there's a hospital run, um, he's disrespectful, then all the other guys that would like to do the job right is saying, you know, why am I doing it right if this guy is, is, is getting away with all of this that, that he's doing? It kills the morale of the department. So we have about five minutes left, which means it's time to turn to politics. And uh, the 2021 elections are beginning to come into view on the city's radar screen. And you're in your second term as Brooklyn Borough President. I'm curious, is there some other borough you'd like to be president of? Or uh, are you eyeing perhaps uh, a different race? And uh, tell us what you're thinking on it. I, I want to be the president of all the boroughs. <laughs> uh, I'm, I, I'm looking towards um, City Hall. I'm, I'm really pursuing a run to run for mayor. Uh, I am excited about it. Uh, the I think that what we were able to do here in Brooklyn and uh, my uh, perception of where I believe the city needs to go, I think is going to be different from all the candidates that are running and thinking about running. And uh, we're going to um, really put um, a presentation forward that I believe um, every day uh, New Yorkers is going to say, you know what, there's something different about this guy. And um, this is what the city is ready for. The city is ready. And I believe I'm, I'm going to put the best case for it. Without getting way out ahead of your formal announcement, when you say <laughs> put a vision together, broad strokes, I mean, what is an Eric Adams in charge of the city? What's the sort of general lens of that? What's the philosophy that you, know, you would present and say, I'm this type of leader, and here's where I want to take the city? I think that. Um, when you start to hear from the other individuals who are running and you look at what I believe the city needs right now, <clears throat> and, and I have this conversation often 
uh, with my staff. We have the right agencies, the right people, but the systems are broken. We put enough money in. We put, a, we put more money in, in educating our children. We put more money in, in building the city. We put more money in, in health care. But when you look at um, either we're going downward or we're flatlining, we don't see any improvements. And so back in um, uh, uh, the beginning of Giuliani years, uh, when Commissioner Bratton came in, I was part of the body that put together ComStat and change policing in uh, not only New York but America. We were having 2,000 homicides a year, uh, 90,000 robberies a year. We're down now to 174 homicides. Still a lot, but nowhere near. But year after year, people were saying, this is what it is. You know, big city, you have 2,000 homicides. And so Commissioner Bratton came in and said, no, we have to change the culture. And he had to move people out of the, out of the, the way who, who couldn't understand that change. What failed to happen in the city, when the police department made this cultural change, every agency should have followed. Every agency should have looked at themselves and say, said, what are we doing? And so I believe as um, the chief executive of the city, number one, I want to create a clear mission for the city, that every agency, although they have their individual portion of the mission, they should be all moving towards that mission. For example, if the goal is to improve the unemployment numbers, then we cannot have agencies that are in the way of allowing companies to open and do business in the city. Yeah, your mission may be that I have to ensure buildings are safe, but that your mission also must feed into the overall mission of the city. Safe buildings, but it should not take a year for you to give someone a permit to build. And what Commissioner Bratton did, he looked at how each one of the units in the police department were, were operating separately. So if we had a gun arrest, the, the robbery unit was not speaking to the gun unit who was not speaking to the precinct. He said, no, everyone must be connected to one mission and we must communicate. That is the problem we're having in the city. We're throwing enough money at the problem. We have enough manpower. We're good, committed, dedicated people. We have enough agencies, but we don't have one mission that we can also, in real time, inspect are we trending where we're supposed to be. We trend and we inspect the trends yearly. The horse is already running down the road and we realize the barn door is broke. <laughs> you know, so what Eric Adams, as the chief executive of this city, I'm going to professionalize our agencies so taxpayers would get the best bang for their tax dollars and we can start seeing our results, not yearly, but daily. We're in a real-time universe we could use technology. Comstat would be a model that would be used in every agency. Um, our procurement dollars, we're, how are we spending in MWBEs daily? Fixing problem daily. If you don't ins inspect what you expect, it's all suspect. So we're at the very end of our time. Quick question since we do have another couple elections between this one, this moment, and 2021, the 2018 election. Uh, are you planning to endorse Governor Cuomo in the primary against Cynthia Nixon? 
that conversation is still uh, open on who we're going to uh, go with. I have not kept it a secret that I have been extremely disappointed in uh, the treatment uh, of Brooklyn in comparison to other boroughs, particularly the Bronx. Uh, <clears throat> the amount of money that was put into the Bronx in comparison to what um, has been placed in Brooklyn is different. You can't keep brushing off and rolling out the same billion dollar project, you know, and you know, act like that. It, that's that's you know, the greatness of you know being in Brooklyn. Seven hundred million of that is going into Brookdale Hospital, which was already earmarked. So we need to. Uh, I'm looking for the governor to do some real things in the borough of Brooklyn. Um, there's some great things that we've rolled out that we're asking him to join us on. And so we're looking at all the candidates. We're looking at the uh, lieutenant governor candidates as well to determine which way we're going to go in that um, in that gubernatorial race. And that's, of course, Jamani Williams, one of your Brooklyn City Council member delegation, uh, members of the delegation. Um, does he have, you know, what's your relationship like with him? And do you think he'd be a good lieutenant governor? I mean, could you see a situation where you're backing Governor Cuomo and, and Jamani for LG? Uh, I can see a situation with both. I can see a situ situation where I, I go with um, the governor and Jumani, and I could see a situation where I could go with Nixon and Kathy. Um, so I think we're really open. I like Jumani a lot. Uh, we've done a lot of things with Jumani. I think Jumani is smart. I think that uh, he has a clear eye on some of the needs in, uh, throughout the state. And so I think that th it's going to be an exciting time. And it should never be a time where we just take for granted. Competition is good. You know, I think, you primaries know, are good? Yes, primaries <laughs> are. I think that it, it, it allows us to hear the voice, uh, the voices of those who are running. So it's, I think it's going to be an exciting, it's going to be an exciting time. Let me ask you one final question, yeah. um, just occurring to me because of all these different who support who and, and you know, feuds and all this stuff. You seem to be among the top leadership in the city, sort of the most consistent ally of the mayor, um, you know, giving him credit more often, it seems, than, than others, um, a little less likely to throw jabs at him and criticize him. Can you lay that out for us? I mean, is that an accurate assessment, do you think? I, I think that's a, that's a very good question because um, uh, I criticize the mayor um, when I believe he... he uh, has done something wrong. Uh, we communicate a lot. You know, he knows that I, I, I consider myself, and he knows I'm, I am an opinionated person. Um, but if we were to sit back and do an analysis of this city, this guy did a good job. You know, it, um, no one thought crime, no one thought that you could be safe without being in disgrace. Um, of stop and frisk. Everyone said that, no, you know, we're going to go back to the 80s. Didn't happen. 3K and pre-K. Um, we feel you should go even further in early um, education, as one of our reports revealed. But the fact is, um, what he's did on pre-K and 3K is amazing. Um, um, the municipal identification, um, that is so important. And those of us who are on the ground know how important it is for an undocumented person to have ID. That is, is just, these are game-changing things. Uh, legal services for um, uh, civil cases, very important, you know. And so I think he has done some really good things for the city. 
uh, in spite of, you know, all the incoming, you know, staying focused and just say, listen, I'm going to stay consistent with my message. Now, some people thought it was attractive because of their political beliefs that, you know, well, let me attack him every way I can. Got it. But um, a solution is not throwing a rock, you know. Uh, and I think that when you really look at it, the mayor was, was sincere. He felt that this was the tale of the two cities. He wanted to change that, and I think he stayed true to that. Okay, and we'll have to see what pitch you uh, are going to make to uh, succeed him. You gave us a little preview here today, so thank, <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Andrew Bone.